This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Many of you will have been following this story, if all well, if only because you're getting something free now out of it. You know the story I'm talking about: this Loblaw bread price fixing thing that is now allowing customers to get a free twenty-five dollar gift card offer people a $25 gift card, people's ears are going to perk up. How do I get that? Well, what some people are not paying as close attention to is why you're getting a $25 gift card. And the story was that Loblaw apparently was fixing the price, was upping unnecessarily, fixing the price of bread to go up and up and up every year. Well, now a story is out, Canadian Press filed a story today suggesting that seven companies in Canada were involved in a bread price fixing scandal. Now, bread price fixing, it may not be the sexiest thing you could possibly think to be fixing prices on. We like to think of collusion in baseball when you're talking multi-million dollar contracts and holding salaries down. We're talking about bread here. Yet, who doesn't buy into this? It's a huge, huge story. Story goes that Loblaw, Walmart, Sobeys, Metro, and Giant Tiger, according to this story, met to arrange consistent matching price increases in bread for 10 years. Every year, the price would go up by the same amount at each one of these stores beginning in 2001. Not just bread, but baked goods and other things as well. Now, if what is being described happened, this would not be legal. If what's being described happened. Here to help us understand this, because it's not something I don't think we think about or deal with all that often. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the Dean of the Rowe School of Business at Dalhousie University. He is also an expert in food policy. He joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. No problem. This may be the stupidest question you are ever going to answer. Nonetheless, why is this not legal? Why is it not legal? Why is it not legal? According to the Competition Bureau Act, which was enacted back in 1886, I believe. It is illegal to collude in Canada. Uh, it is the law. So you cannot price fix. Uh, you can try to control market conditions, but you can not uh, abuse of your power. And that's exactly what happened in this case. What's, uh, so we've actually seen cases of collusion in the past uh, with chocolate and other kinds of food products and and that many of your listeners are probably thinking about other kinds of products also beyond food but this case is actually quite unusual because you actually see uh, two levels of the supply chain colluding in parallel so according to the bureau or today's report uh, both wholesale and retail were colluding in lockstep Okay, before I get to the definition of that, you say you can, under the law, you are legally allowed to try to control market conditions. What would be the difference? How would you control market conditions as opposed to colluding to drive up or drive down prices? Well, I'll use uh, this case in particular. So according to the report that was published today by the Bureau, uh, it seems that there is evidence, strong evidence, that wholesalers, so Canada Bread and Weston in this case, were actually meeting months ahead of time to fix prices at wholesale. And at retail, the same thing was going on. Loblaw, Sobeys, Metro, Giant Tiger, and Walmart. So they were actually agreeing to specific prices. So 
uh, over time, you could see patterns uh, of pricing uh, going on in parallel. Now, the idea, I assume, is we don't want a monopoly to occur because then consumers, customers are going to be stuck buying what, at the price. We need, a, we need an item, we have to pay for it, and the price is what is set, and it's a monopoly, we don't have a choice. This isn't really a monopoly, though, is it? You have other options. You could have gone to other stores that would have sold bread that presumably could have sold that bread for a lower price. Well, so this is what's been happening. It, it is essentially one oligopoly serving another. So basically, you have two manufacturers, both Canada Bread and Weston, serving a handful of grocers. So you do that would be uh, a an architecture that could make uh, collusion more attractive or more tempting. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, there, were, there were just a few players. So, yes, uh, consumers uh, did have a choice, but what they didn't know is that they were talking to each other. And it, it's been proven beyond reasonable doubt by the Bureau. Yeah, and, and what we're really seeing in this, this is really, more than I can recall, this is a real cloak-and-dagger operation. I mean, as you say, we're talking about meetings in, I don't know if the rooms were dark, but let's just say they were in dark corners of rooms to set these prices. I mean, this is as behind-the-scenes kind of stuff as I remember hearing about these kind of things. Exactly. So it is It is unbelievably disappointing. I suspect that some of you listeners will just laugh it off and move on with their lives and won't be bothered by the story. But uh, here's the thing. Uh, about two months ago, if you would have asked me uh, if uh, there is collusion in the food industry, I would have said probably not. But now I'm wondering where else in the grocery store <laughs> are prices affected by collusion, not just with bakery goods. I mean, this could actually be massive. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from the Dean Rowe School of Business at Dalhousie University. He's an expert in food policy. We're talking about the price fixing on bread that we're hearing about now that expands over seven different companies. And Dr. Charlebois, I I expect that you are 100% right that some people listening are going, come on. It's a few cents a loaf extra a year on bread, hardly the end of the world. But you mentioned something just before our break there, and that was what else might have been fixed? You at one point thought, no, this wouldn't happen. But I think a lot of people, and myself included, are now saying, okay, so what else in my grocery store might have prices that have been artificially plumped up? Exactly. So let's Let's take the budget of a typical family. Uh, so a typical family in Canada will spend this year about $12,000. Of the $12,000, uh, you're looking at maybe uh, $400 or $500 in baked goods. Let's say, for argument's sake, that you're paying, say, 2 3% more uh, for, for that $500. You're looking at perhaps $15, $17 more in a you would have paid normally. Now, this scheme, allegedly, according to the Bureau, lasted 14 years. So 14 years multiplied by 17, maybe $20. That's the amount of money that you paid uh, probably more than you should have 
on baked goods alone, and there are seven more categories. But I could actually break it down like that. It amounts to a bit of money. Which actually makes the idea of a $25 gift card seem like a pretty sweet deal for Loblaw. It is a sweet deal. Uh, in fact, so for Loblaw, uh, giving $25 uh, was, I think, a brilliant move because you get people in, you increase traffic, they get to spend probably more than $25. And, uh, and, so, and you may actually end up buying President's Choice products. Uh, and so that actually increases margins for, for Loblaw. And for for weeks, all we talked about was the $25, and we never talked about the problem. Now, that narrative, I think, after today, will change. More people will start asking questions about what really happened, and, and that's why we're having this conversation. Well, and it's not just Loblaw. As we say, there are seven, according to the Competition Bureau, seven companies. The rest of them have not yet, that I know of, put out a free gift card, whether that solves the problem for them or not, but now you've got six other companies, presumably, that potentially are going to be in the crosshairs of angry people in the public saying, well, why did you do this? Exactly. So a lot of answers uh, are are going to be uh, sought after. I mean, Loblaw came out on December 19th stating that this was an industry problem, an industry-wide problem, so uh, that was 42 days ago. And back then, uh, a lot of people were wondering, so why, why did Loblaw wait for 14 years before coming out? Now, if you add 42 days on top of that, that's the question the other grocers will have to answer. If Loblaw came out, why, uh, why didn't others come out? At the same time. Well, this is one of the questions that I am completely befuddled by. Uh, because the story that, as it's written, as I understand the story, it says that Loblaw came forward to the Competition Bureau to say, we have discovered that price fixing was going on. The, the story is that they came forward and presented this, and we want to now repair this. How could Loblaw be involved in the price fixing but only at some point discover that there was price fixing. I don't understand. Well, that's, that's the thing. And so there, there's a lot of unknowns, but I think that the industry, uh, because of what was reported today, uh, will be compelled to answer specific questions as to what happened, why, uh, why didn't uh, Sobeys or Metro or other companies come forward with, uh, with these allegations already? Uh, I mean, the CEO of Metro just yesterday uh, mentioned during a call that uh, Metro had nothing to do with the bread cartel story yesterday. And so today they're being accused of being part of this. So uh, whether the CEO probably wasn't aware that his own company was involved, but there's lots of unknowns. And I suspect that a lot of companies are looking within right now to really fully understand what's been happening. If a company, if Loblaw had not come forward with this, do you think it would have ever been found out? Uh, so Loblaw came out because they didn't have a choice. Uh, they had to come out. Uh, it, is a, it is a publicly traded company. They, they, it has obligations uh, towards uh, its sh- shareholders, so they didn't have much of a choice. And, and frankly, they were... They were aware of the situation, and, and people outside the company knew that Loblaw was aware, so they had no choice. Uh, but 
they also knew that the report was going to come out today, uh, blaming seven companies, including Loblaw, and that's why they decided to come forward then. Other companies uh, basically was just waiting for the investigation to come forward. They all cooperated. Uh, they all gave all the information that the Bureau was asking for. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of these companies will react to the news today. And it will be very interesting, and you alluded to it, it will be very interesting to see if any other products are identified, if there's any more of this, not necessarily with these stores, but elsewhere to see if this is going on in more than baked goods. I I suspect a lot of people are going to be going back and examining now whether prices went up at certain things all over the place. This may not be the last that we hear about Uh, something like this. Have you noticed since uh, December 19th, as you walk into a grocery store, there are stacks of bread on sale? (laughs) Did you notice? I hadn't, but now I'm going to go take a look. I I visited several retail stores. There are bargains to be made, and guess what? More are going to be available to consumers, so watch for sales. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. All right, bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. There is a perception, and I know it's out there because you hear it out there at times, there is a perception among some that those who own businesses are rich. You open a store, you flip on the we're open for business sign, and you start counting your money. It is that simple. If you make a business, if you have a business, you are wealthy. Now, this perception has been perpetuated in recent years by governments of certain stripes and by those who have painted businesses as the elites and the privileged and those who are taking advantage of circumstances and cutting corners on taxes and all the rest of things because, again, if you own a business, you must be rich. Well, while this is true in some cases, we know it's true in some cases, there are some people who do very, very, very well in business, some of them Add a few more varies in there. Very, 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 very well. We know there are those people who are doing well. There are also those, and I think that probably if you were to look around, probably more of these than of the others, there are those who risk everything to start a business, to take a crack at a business, to create a business, and it doesn't work out. They have risked their capital, their future, their whatever else, and now it doesn't turn out to be the gold mine. Jody Gaskell opened Sticky's Candy in Westdale a while ago. Uh, Jody Gaskell will not be working at Sticky's Candy anymore. It is a rough go in the business world. Jody joins me now. Jody, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. Your your store is closed now, right? It's not closing. It has closed. You know, yeah. Today was um, uh, the last time we moved everything out. Had our last sale on Saturday. So yeah, we are done. Painful. No, um, it was at first. I've moved on to a new career, but um, I think I've just got, there's so many unresolved issues that, that it's more, I'm sort of happy to have it gone. And it was an amazing thing and it was an amazing dream, but we ran into a lot of problems on the way. Well, we're going to talk about some of the challenges that anybody mm-hmm. in your position faces. But when you decided you were going to start a business, now for those who don't know, this was a candy store. You decide you're going to go into business. What did you think you were going to do? What was going to be the outcome when you said, you know what, I'm going to do this? What did you imagine was going to be what happened? I imagined that we'd be, that I'd be sitting in the candy store for a couple of years and building it and um, knowing my customers, 
building the brand and then maybe branch out to more stores so I can be out of the store a little bit more or just learning a small business. Um, that was the plan. I didn't think after 14 months we'd be <laughs> staring debt so strongly in the face um, due to a lot of factors, as I say. Yeah, we didn't expect this outcome. We, we didn't expect to be rich off it. We just expected this to be a great learning and a great building process to be in a few years, maybe have a little bit more financial freedom. But you have to, I think, go into something like this if you're going to start it. There has to be a high level of optimism. This is going to work. You're believing it when you start this, that this is going to be a successful operation. It, yeah. Um, I mean, this is a franchise, so it's it's a bit different of a story. We were sold a very, very uh, optimistic package and promises. And uh, unfortunately, we bought a franchise that was in in the business of selling franchises and maybe not helping out um, people. It was a broken model, I guess, to put it nicely. <laughs> And and even then, though, even then, I have to believe that when you buy it and when you've done your research and when you've yeah. looked into it, that you are believing, you're willing yeah. to throw everything you have into this. This is going to yeah. work. Yeah. I mean, looking at numbers and projections and the area we were in, um, I'm a pretty social person. I think I have a lot of um, a lot of people I know in the community. I do a lot of work with the community. And it kind of seems like a no-brainer. I mean, I, I understand nothing's easy, but it just if the numbers were right that we were given and the margins were right that we were given and the community that we were building in was right, it, it would make sense. And again, it may, you know, I wasn't paying myself well, but we knew that was the sacrifice that and everything else you put into the business to be able to build it. It would be a slow build. But that's the story we hear from everybody, right? A small yeah. business, it's a slow build and you are going to put a lot of time and a lot of sweat and a lot of everything else into it and eventually it's going to turn into something really good. Yeah, hopefully. That's the plan. How, mm-hmm. how do you pay when you're starting out? Because you, uh, maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, as far as I know, you are not independently wealthy. You're not a, a niece of Bill Gates or something. Um, <laughs> no. where, where does one, if one is going to start a small business now, especially if it's a franchise, where do you get the money yeah. to do it? it? The equity of the house. It was a second mortgage. And we're in an area, I've, I've had luck getting ahead of the market a few times. So um, buying and selling and being able to move every few years. So we had just moved into a new house um, in Dundas. The equity had gone up just enough for the franchise. So to me, everything seemed lined up. We're like, what? This must be a sign. And it's, they were building this right up the road from, you know, this is in Westdale. We lived in Dundas. It just seemed to all align. So I, I guess if there's one, I mean, there's, there's good, of course, that came out of it, but at least it was the equity in our house and it wasn't our savings. So it's still, it's still definitely hurts financially, but this certainly wasn't, you know, us going into our savings account and putting it up, putting it out. We'll be paying the second mortgage for the next 20 something years, but you know, we had a little bit of equity, which helped a bit. But ultimately but, the point is there is yeah. risk involved in this. You have, you sure. have had to put your money against this. And in your particular yeah. case, you are going to be paying that money now that it didn't pan out. Yeah, that and the debt that comes along with it. Absolutely. That's now in our hands for us to figure out, you know, how to get rid of that next, whether it's moving or, you know, working a couple part-time jobs or whatever, but there's definitely a change. But I've always, I've always admired someone that took the chance and whether they are, you know, I know a couple of people that have multi-million dollar companies and I don't begrudge them for having money because 
there is a lot of process and a lot of, of risk and a lot of equity and capital, like you said. They started I mean, by not knowing. They didn't start as millionaires. No. They started by taking a huge risk. Yeah, and so for them to have money and other people to be upset or or be upset that people are paid so well or, or have, I don't think that's fair because if they're risking and they're putting their hard work and their thoughts and, and everything into a business, then I don't think that's something that you should be punished for. I mean, thankfully, some people make it. Others of us, we don't do so well. We took the chance, but you, you have to have small business to grow to big business and and. We, we need that. We need that part of the community, a small business, and it's just, it doesn't seem very well supported these days. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Jody Gaskell, we're talking about small business. Small business, at times, it seems, ends up in the crosshairs. I've used that line a few times today, but it does. It becomes the thing that if you own a business, small, large, whatever, you must be doing really, really well. You must be making a lot of money. And it's something that's always driven me nuts because I've always been someone, like Jody just said before the break, that has admired if you are going to risk everything and then you succeed wildly, great for you. I've got no beef with you if you make money after you have risked everything you have to take that chance to make that. Because there are people, and we're talking with Jody, who unfortunately is one of the ones who is going through a business that just closed, who risk a lot. And it doesn't work out, Jody. And when you when you started this business, you put your money in, you put take the collateral against your house, you get the business going, you buy the thing. Were you paying yourself much of a salary to make this thing go? Um, no, not at all. And uh, we we're just trying to figure out again what the business would do, what I had to pay myself. You know, I know what my partner made, so to see what we had to do. But when the when the new minimum wage numbers came in, if I were to continue the business sort of at the level we were working at, maybe with a little bit more growth, then I would actually have to pay myself less than my, you know, 16-year-old employees just to kind of to make ends meet. And that didn't quite seem like a good thing to do. Well, and it's not just, I mean, the minimum wage certainly was one of the issues. You've touched yeah. on a few other things. Hydro costs, well, you go through yeah. what the ones were that started when you get this business going now and now the bills start to come in and they start to change. What were some of the things that really hurt? Um, well, we had even with our with our rent, the TMI went up um, over the year, and that's your tax, I think, maintenance and insurance, and it went up considerably. We thought like a lot more than was predicted, so we add that on, and then we look into the as I said the shipping rates because we had briefly had a, a warehouse that we could order from out of here, and then they kind of closed down when the franchise crumbled this way, and so now we were looking at having to ship everything in. So of course. Charges for fuel are ridiculous. So it was just sort of everything that we sort of counted on was was increasing really, really quickly. And we opened up at the beginning of November. So it was shortly after that that we heard about the minimum wage. And so once you kind of did projections for that, and we're just a small business. I only had four other employees. I've talked to other business owners that have, uh, you know, a few larger. They're still a small business. But uh, but how much this was going to cost? I mean, some restaurants were looking at $100,000 more a year in pay. And if you know any restaurant owners, they're they're generally just kind of scraping by too. That's a lot of money to try to put together for for one little business. But Jody, the answer always is if you can find a way to cut costs and you can find a way just to raise your prices and everything will be okay. Now, I don't know if you're in a franchise, I don't know if you can necessarily cut your costs all that much, but what if you had just said, I'm going to raise my prices by 20%? Well, again, yeah, we can't because we're in a franchise and, and 
one of the struggles we had is they had their BC company and they had BC com- company pricing, which we always tried to get a little lower. So the promise of buying power that unfortunately didn't really work and and high prices. <laughs> so, you know, it just it just there was it was a whole it was a whole chart of things that weren't right. So, no, we couldn't have raised our prices and I would have a hard time raising them anyways because we were already a little overpriced as far as I was concerned. When, but yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people have to do is they have to they charge it back to the customer. That's the only way to do it. Was this what you expected? To, to start your own business, to get your own business going, did you end up, n- not with it not working, but as far as how much time you had to put in and all the other things, especially the time, was it yeah. what you expected? Um, it was definitely a lot of time. It took a lot longer to do everything because you're doing it yourself, obviously, um, whether it was from, from sourcing orders or, or figuring out prices or dealing with staff. Yeah. And we expected a little bit more support and guidance. So you're kind of basically, here's your, here's the door, here's your open sign and, uh, figure it out for yourself, which mm. was fun. I mean, it's, it was nice. It was a learning curve for sure. But by the time you kind of got into the swing of things, you also realized that the swing wasn't working. But that would be the so, same, yeah. I would figure, Jody, for even if they're not a franchise, for most small business yeah. owners who start a business, yeah. they're in the same position. You're figuring this out on the fly and hoping you can keep it going long enough to actually get it to turn the corner. Exactly. And figuring it out before it kind of all goes downhill. So again, we sort of support, we expected more support and, and more guidance. And, um, you know, you pay, you pay definitely some more money to have a franchise so they can lead you along the way. So someone that goes out by themselves, I mean, they have to expect to be able to source all the stuff by themselves. So it's a, it's a more of a learning curve, but. <laughs> well, listen, we only have a, sa- a few seconds here, but last yeah. thing, you have heard the same things I have, the same things a lot of other people have where business owners, whether small or large, have been called a bunch of things or accused, not accused, accused mm-hmm. isn't the right word, said you're doing really well, you, you're making lots of money. You're When you hear that, when you hear that stuff and you know what you were going through, um, what are you thinking when you hear those comments about business owners and how much they're taking advantage or how yeah. much money they make all the rest? What do you think when you hear that stuff? I just think walk a mile in their shoes or at least kind of take a look at what they're, what they're doing. I mean, currently my new job is working for um, a local mompreneur that that is huge right now and she's in 250 stores in 50 countries and there's five of us in the office and she lives in the same house basically on the same street that her workers do and she's a a big big company and yet it's still it takes a long time a long time to to actually see some return on stuff and that's as I said she's she's a very successful businesswoman but it might be years before she sees an equal return on things it is uh, it is a really tough situation. Again, uh, a lot of small businesses are. People like you who put money in, who risk stuff, and then it doesn't turn out to be the million-dollar idea and yet mm-hmm. made a go of it. Uh, listen, Jody, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it today. I know it's probably not a lot of fun to talk about, but I really appreciate the, <laughs> okay. you taking the time. It's done, so we close that chapter and move forward. <laughs> Jody Gaskell, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. That is, uh, that is a typical story, though. A lot of people with that story. Which is why, as I say, I don't mind when someone does really well in business because there's so many that have risked everything and it hasn't worked out for them. We can't be jealous about this kind of stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There are rules, allegedly, about stuff you can take onto an airplane. And 
you know, if you've ever, I mean, I, who hasn't flown on an airplane? But if you've flown recently, there are people who will try to bend those rules as best they can. Carry-on bags, for example, bags that you're going to take onto the plane, they have to be of a certain size, but you and I and everyone else who have flown lately have seen the person try to say, this is my carry-on bag, and it's the size of a Peugeot. I mean, it's a huge thing. And then they'll try and cram it into the overhead bin, take up all the space. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? People will do stuff on airplanes. Then there's a second part of this story that is in the paper today and online today. There are people with legitimate, very properly used support animals. You know what I'm talking about, right? There are people who have some conditions. I'm not talking about necessarily, it could be like a a seeing eye dog or a support animal for other conditions that you might have that would provide you comfort. There are people who have support animals. So now what happens when you combine an aircraft carry-on with a support animal? Now you can take some, in some cases, you can take a support animal onto the airline and fly with them. Usually it's a lap dog, something like that, that will provide comfort for the person. Well, United Airlines was faced with a situation. Um, Which day was it? This week. I'm not sure which day it was this week. Somebody showed up at the airport with their support animal, demanding that this animal be allowed to fly in the cabin with them to to provide them comfort during their flight. Uh, It was not a lap dog. (laughs) It was their support peacock. (laughs) Showed up at the airport with a full-sized peacock. Demanding that this creature be allowed to fly in the cabin with them. Now, not only if you've seen a peacock, these are not small birds, especially when they decide to begin putting on a show for other peacocks and start fanning the tail and everything else. But apparently, and I don't know all about peacocks, I, you know, I'm not David Attenborough from the narration of the, the penguin shows and all those, um... Apparently, peacocks are not real friendly creatures. (laughs) And yet this person decided that it would be a really wise idea to show up and demand that their peacock be allowed to fly with them. And then, and then, apparently, was really PO'd when they weren't allowed to take the peacock on the plane. This was an outrage. I should be able to fly with my peacock at all times. This is not the first time that uh, airlines have been faced with things like this. Oh, by the way, the person tried to then, once it was, um, once the peacock was not allowed to be a lap animal, they tried to buy a second ticket for the peacock and were still told, no, you cannot have a peacock running loose in the cabin of an airliner at 30,000 feet. I don't know what could happen, but probably something really horrible might go, might go wrong. There have been people who have tried to bring pot-bellied pigs onto the plane as support animals. Uh, someone once tried to bring a live turkey. Again, uh, unusual. But apparently the actual thought behind this is the reason for the 
peacock maneuver. The reason that this peacock became a support animal is because costs of extra baggage and flying your animals have become costly now on airlines. And so people have decided, you know what would be better than paying to put my creature in luggage and send it along like everything else? Claim that I need it for support and have it with me on the plane and fly for free. Which, of course, we know this is exactly what we've talked about with other inc- other things and other incidences, which, of course, diminishes the real cases where someone really needs to bring their animal on board. Because now, you know, rules are going to have to be put in place that says we can't have support animals on the plane. That You know that's going to come. But nonetheless, I would love to know. I would love to meet. They don't put the name in the paper. They don't put the name with the story. I would love to know who was sitting at home said, oh man, I got to fly from LA to Chicago and I got to get Peter the Peacock to Chicago with me. I don't know why you have to bring your peacock with you on a flight, but nonetheless, I got to get Peter to Chicago. How am I going to do this and not have to spend a lot? I know I'm going to claim that I need him for personal support to calm me on my flight. A bird that probably will freak out when the plane takes off and begin running up and down the aisle, pecking at people and fanning its tail and doing whatever else peacocks do. You know, United and some of these other airlines over the last number of years have received some tough news. They've had some things that, you know, good PR has not always been easy for them. I congratulate the folks on United for taking a stand against allowing a peacock on the plane. I I, I would not want to be sitting there and have Larry or Mary or whoever else walk onto a plane, peacock under their arm and say, oh, this is sitting next to you for the entire flight. And you want to know something? I guarantee if there ever is a day when a peacock is allowed to fly in the cabin of a plane, it will be in the seat next to me. That It is bound to happen. The peacock will be next to me. And well, actually, I almost kind of hope that happens because it would be a great story if it does. But man, what a miserable flight that would be. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Just back from the Caribbean Islands. After enjoying a week of sun and frivolity, our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. There you go. Now, how's that for entry music tonight, Bubba? I need that music back so badly. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking that might cause some uh, some pangs for the islands. Is I there don't any? Know why I'm here? Is is there any rum left in the Caribbean now that you've returned home? You know, I didn't have a... I'm not a big beer drinker. Um, in fact, I don't like beer. What about rum, though? I said, is there any rum left in the islands? But I didn't drink any rum, Scott. I, oh, I, wow. I drank beer there. Um, just for the heat, and it's, you know, nice and light. They've got a couple of brands, one called Calic and Sands. They're very, very light. In fact, this may gross, you know, some tradition beer traditionalists out, but I would have a glass of ice and pour the beer right in with the glass of ice, and it was refreshing. Have you been tested for Hep C then since you've been home? <laughs> You're not supposed to drink their ice, I thought. No, oh, man, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I do have. Since I've come home, I've gotten the craziest sore throat. It's just unbelievable. Well, you also. 
I, I don't know how Bubba O'Neill does it, but he goes on vacation and suddenly the world of, well, sort of at least B-level celebrities flocks to him. I see one picture. You're posing with, um, who are you posing with? Brooke Henderson, the go- Canadian golfer. You just bump into her on the golf course? <laughs> well, the season-opening LPGA event was there. The uh, Pure Silk was uh, at the Ocean Club there. And it appeared that, you know, we were kind of in that afternoon mode. We're like, what do you want to do? And I just sort of suggested I wouldn't mind going. I mean, the island's a small island. It didn't take much to go there. We had transportation. And uh, admission was free, actually. And it was just a beautiful day. And other than this, you know, this insane wind that was blowing. And Brooke ended up, you know, leading on that day as well, too. So it's kind of shuffle my way through some people and introduce myself and she was just as i've told people she's one class act and really someone that you know i think we all should be very proud to say is canadian okay but honestly admit this you did not really have to introduce yourself brooke knew who you were you know what (laughs) i'm not going to go that far but once I, i told her what i did for a living she she perked right up, and it was, our conversation was a lot of fun. And then I see another picture today. You're hanging out in the casino, doing whatever you're doing in the casino, and there's Webster, <laughs> Emmanuel Lewis. What are you doing hanging out with Emmanuel Lewis in the islands? I, that was as shocked. I mean, I, I was hoping that maybe I'd see Brooke Anderson or a, you know even Elena Sharp at the golf course, but to run into... Emmanuel Lewis, while, you know, the middle of night, that was probably around one thirty in the morning at the Atlantis Casino, was just a shocker. And <laughs> it was one of those moments where I need to take a picture. Me and my friend, we have to take a picture because no one will believe that I will be at a casino in the Bahamas <laughs> with Webster. There, this, this needs a picture. This was a perfect opportunity. And I will tell you, this Emmanuel Lewis, not a lot of changes since the, the old days of Webster, that's for sure, in terms of growth and size. Well, and I'll say one other thing, is recently another friend of mine, someone that I follow on Facebook, took a picture of him. He was up at the Ancaster Silver City Movie Theaters. Apparently he spends an awful lot of time in this area. I don't exactly know why. But he does. It's this is this is his area. You know, it's a weird thing. So you you know what's going to happen. You're going to bump into him in Hamilton next week, and he's going to go, "Hey, Bubba, how you doing?" It's funny that you do say that because when I did post that on on, uh, on social media on Instagram, there was a reply from someone that does live in the Ancaster area, and I found I I, I I'm glad that you second and sort of back this up because the person said that he's in the Ancaster area all the time. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what the deal is, but yes, that is uh, that is true. Anyway, let us move along. But we're glad you're back, although you're not. But we're glad you're back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first of all, before I get to the thing I really want to talk to you about, one quick question. Why is it, or how is it, we know... Rob Gronkowski is going to be playing in the Super Bowl. He is the tight end for New England who got smashed in the head last game, a week and a half ago, knocked out, if not cold, certainly knocked loopy, helmet-to-helmet collision, and somehow he is ready to play. He is practicing now and is going to be ready to play in the Super Bowl. How come football concussions heal so much faster than hockey concussions and baseball concussions and every other kind of concussion? If this was a hockey player who took that hit, he's out for a month. 
Well, I mean, I will say this Gronkowski is a guy that has actually gone through this you know, concussion protocol before, and he's actually, despite his, his abilities on the field, which are, you know, world-class and all-pro and generally, you know, an all-pro every year, I mean, he has suffered a tremendous amount of injuries. Um, perhaps his bounce back is better than most. Um, he did say, and he was on the podium at that Super Bowl media day, and, and he was asked the question, that you know, would he be playing? And he came up with a flat yes. So I guess he must be feeling better. I think he knows his body better than most. And, yeah, uh, but I just, there's something weird about this because, as I say, hockey players, you get a blow like that and you are out for weeks. And baseball players, I remember when Justin Morneau <laughs> got a concussion at second base, it was months. And football players, if they miss a game, usually it's maybe one game in their back. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how they recover faster if they do. I don't know what the rules are different. Anyway, I just I thought it was very odd because if that had been a hockey hit, Gronkowski's out for a month. I will say this, though, Scott, is that it, it's been, it will be a full two weeks. And as you talked about the regularity of baseball players and, of course, uh, the National Hockey League, the NBA, who play you know maybe four or five games a week, he has had a full two weeks off with no practicing. and uh, Yeah, but even the hockey players you hear about all the time, they can't even ride the exercise bike because they get right. dizzy or they get nauseous. He's out practicing now. So it's two weeks between games, but it's a week from the hit to when he's practicing. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, just something that I've noticed. I don't quite understand it. Toronto Raptors are a good team this year. I don't talk about basketball that much on the show, but Toronto Raptors are a really good team this year, a very good team. Probably the best team in the East right now. That means that if everything goes according to perfection, they could be in the NBA Finals and probably playing against Golden State. Now, I'm not sure the Toronto Raptors have what it takes in a series to beat the star power that Golden State has. So, Cleveland Cavaliers are beginning to sink badly. It looks as though LeBron James will be leaving Cleveland Cavaliers at the end of this season to go somewhere else, the Lakers or wherever. We keep hearing these reports. If you were the Raptors, would you reach out and make a pitch to make a trade for LeBron James to see if you could get LeBron James to come to your team knowing that he probably wouldn't stick around, but this might give you one chance to be able to have enough star power to compete with Golden State and maybe win a championship. Uh, absolutely, I would. I mean, here's an opportunity for LeBron James, who is an, uh, let's be honest, he's a he's a huge brand beyond just a tremendous basketball player, arguably, you know, an MVP candidate for his entire career. And if there's an opportunity for him, I, I would present it this way, Scott, in the sense that, you would have an opportunity to bring the Raptors, help bring the Raptors their first championship. We've said this, and I think the Raptors have said this, several players, the coaches, Dwayne Casey, is that the one thing that makes them so happy and proud about being a Raptor is that you're playing for Toronto, but you're also playing for the country of Canada as well, too. We've heard those words come out of you know the baseball team as well, too, the Blue Jays. And someone like LeBron, for him to increase his legacy, because winning another NBA championship, I think, with Cleveland doesn't do much more to add to his legacy because he's already brought that, you know, promised and brought that to them. But if he could do that on an international basis with a team outside of the country, could you imagine, I mean, how much bigger his, his, his aura and his legend becomes? And that's, so, a, that's so a great I, LeBron thing. And that would be great for him, for sure. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. But if you're the Raptors, 
you would you would have to give up a good chunk. The the, the Cavaliers are not going to give him up, and this is where it becomes tricky. If you were Masai Ujiri, mm-hmm. would you be willing to give up a couple key pieces off your bench, young guys who are controllable, who are lowish salary, who can help you down the road? Yep. Would you be willing to give that up for the? few months that you might have him in the one playoff run. Yeah, absolutely I would, because the Raptors have tasted the juice already, right? This isn't a team that's just getting to the postseason. They've gotten there before. They've reached the Eastern Conference Final, pushed the Cavaliers to six games. Uh, they, they've tasted the juice already. The only thing left for the Raptors to do now is to win a championship. And Messiah Jury has pushed, positioned this team with such young talent, putting aside their all-stars, their obvious all-stars and and Lowry and DeRozan, and you know some veterans like uh, Serge Ibaka, C.J. Miles. There is a very attractive package that you could offer the Cleveland Cavaliers because they right now appear to be close to what the Clippers are going to, depending on how things go here. They could be very close to what the Clippers are doing right now and tearing down that team and preparing for the future. You, the Raps have tons of young talent to be able to do something like that and still keep the likes of a Lowry and DeRozan in place and to add a LeBron James in there. We talk about these powerful teams, these super threes, super fours. What a team. And I can't even imagine the excitement that would be going on at the ACC with a Raptors jersey, a number 23 Raptors jersey. That would be insane. It would likely, though take the Raptors from next year from being the elite of the East to possibly knock them down a peg. Is that a good enough trade-off, that gamble to say, yes, I'll, I'll yes. live with where we are next year sure. if we can take a real shot at it this Absolutely. year? Absolutely. you 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 got to go for it. If, if that opportunity were to present itself, and, and I'm not, this is this is the craziest thing of all time. I, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm considering this in my brain, but if that opportunity were to present itself, I think you have no options. You would have to do it. If LeBron showed type of interest. And, you know, it's funny enough, LeBron has complimented the city of Toronto on numerous occasions. After the playoffs a couple you know, of years ago, was oh, it? Oh, yes. I forgot about that, actually. But when he actually said, listen to this place, look at these yep. fans, and, you know, saluting the Raptors after that six-game loss. But, I mean, he's talked about it with the All-Star game. He's buddies he's with Drake. About, sorry, I mean, he, uh, you know, Drake has got this sort of association with a lot of the top uh, NBA stars and you know, he, he kind of is very, very close to that community of sports and, you know, uh, hip-hop and, you know, the style and the fashion. But LeBron has talked about the international flavor of this team, and he's also talked about the fact that, you know, a lot of NBA guys have talked about it, how this is such a melting pot. Uh, Dwayne Casey went into a big talk about this. I mean, he's married to a white woman. I mean, and where he's come from, that would have never happened. And... Uh, that's out there in the NBA about what a melting pot and what an international flavor the city of Toronto has, um, and that they've gotten over this old stigma that we had in the past of oh you got to go through customs and blah 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 and we don't have you know black products that's all changed now. So is that impossible? Is that going to happen? No. Is it impossible to think that a player of LeBron James ilk? could end up with the Raptors someday? I think it's possible. See, I don't think that on its face, normally you would say LeBron, he's got a no-trade clause. I don't think normally you say he allows that trade to happen. But if Cleveland continues to 
go in the direction they're going, which is they've been really bad lately. I mean, really bad. And now Kevin Love is hurt, one of their big stars, and he's going to be out for eight weeks. If I'm LeBron James and I'm already thinking that I'm leaving next year or in the offseason for next year and I can go to a team that potentially has a chance to win a championship and get back to the finals, as crazy as it sounds, I think Masai Ujiri is not doing, I'm with you, I think he's not doing his job, and he's done a great job. I think he's not doing his job if he doesn't even make a phone call and ask. Yeah, the, my only um, my only thing that keeps me grounded on that thought, Scott, is that as much as he may leave this year, and LeBron has said this several times, and I think his actions have speak, spoken louder than his, you know, his words or other people's words, he has a, an affection for his home in, in Ohio, in northern Ohio, where um, he said it several times. A lot of people don't respect that state. They don't respect, you know, the area of Akron and Cleveland. Uh, they're kind of looked down as, you know, maybe some people look at Buffalo as sort of yep. the armpit of yep. America. And I, I, even though there is a possibility of him leaving, and I've read, I've read polls where people, if he leaves this time, the city of Cleveland and the people of Northern Ohio will not be upset with him because he promised a championship. He brought them that first championship. But wouldn't it be better for him? All right, the end of the year, he's a free agent. He now decides, I want to go to L.A. Once again, if that happens, he is choosing to leave his home state, his home city, yeah. his people. But I As think unlike if he gets traded, he can say, hey, they came to me and asked if they if I would accept a trade. They sure. wanted to move me. Sure. It was out of my hands. For him, that's a perfect wipe your hands of this. And I'm it's not me, man. Don't look at me. It wasn't me. I mean, it, I think yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying there. I just get the feeling that he would do whatever it will take, even without a Kevin Love, even with this team, you know, not playing the playing arguably their worst basketball of the year. I will say this: it's still not even the All Star break, and teams like this. I mean, the Cavs are still going to make the playoffs. And I still think, despite how banged up they are, injured, and not playing well, questions about the coach, all kinds of question marks, I think he will go down fighting with that team, despite uh, the issues that are going on there. Because I will say this, he's arguably the greatest player in the game right now, even at an advanced age. And if you get into a postseason with LeBron focused, We've seen it before. We're very virtually one LeBron can get you to the final. Could happen. Could happen. All right, I've got two minutes, and I'm going to give you the hardest question you're going to get all week, and you got to answer it in less than two minutes. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm pumped. Roger Federer just won his twentieth major, yeah. won the Australian Open while you were away hanging out with Webster. I don't know if you caught up on that, or if just you know Webster was so distracting that you didn't realize that Federer had won. But anyway. Where in the pecking order of all-time greatest athletes now do you put Roger Federer? If you were to make a list of top 10 athletes of all time, Roger Federer has now entered that category. In fact, I think he was there before even this, this, uh, this win in the Australian Open. And there's a good reason to believe he'll be the favorite. I don't think he'll play the French, but he'll probably play Wimbledon where he'll have to be the overwhelming favorite to win again and win number 21. He is a top 10 athlete of all time. Who do you have? I mean, we may have done this before. I don't think we have. No. Who do you have as your top three athletes of all time? Uh, Federer is real close there. Tiger Woods makes my list. 
Uh, I mean, Tom Brady would definitely have to be on that list of modern-day athletes. Um, and I know you're going to hate me for saying this. but Don't say Derek Jeter. No, no, no. Maybe even more controversial. I know that's a personal thing for you. But, <laughs> it's a joke thing for me, but anyway, go ahead. You know, but, but, I mean, all I know is that Barry Bonds was the greatest baseball player I've ever seen in my life. Interesting. So, what order you got them in? Tiger. I'd have, to, I'd have to, to sit down and do that, but I'll just I'll just throw those names out there. All right, all right. I got and of course, and of course, Wayne Gretzky. Well, is, yeah, is in there. I mean, that, that goes without saying. I got uh, Pele and Babe Ruth and Wayne Gretzky, and we can uh, sort out what order they go in. See, to me, I had this discussion just with someone coming into the studio today. Here's the difficult part about this. It's impossible always to judge and rate athletes from different eras. It's Absolutely. impossible to do it. However, the one way that you can sometimes do it is by comparing them against their contemporaries. How did they compare to the people playing at the same time as them? Right. And if you judge them by that category, I don't see how Gretzky who still is was miles ahead of everyone else he played against and is still miles ahead. Pele, who was miles ahead of everybody, and Babe Ruth, who was miles ahead. I, I it, it, To me, it's a, it's a remarkable choice you have, and yours are, are equally, you know, Tiger Woods, at, the, at his prime, yeah, he's in that mix for sure. He's in that mix. Barry Bonds, I have a little tougher time with that, and not even because of the steroids. I think there were other great players that he may not have been as far ahead of. But nonetheless, certainly, steroids aside, a terrific player. Who was your other one? I said Gretzky. Oh, and, and Gretzky, yeah. And, and Gretzky there. But here's my thing with Tiger Woods, Scott. Uh, and I'll put the, and this is where I, why I will always have him in my list. Never, at least in my lifetime, have I ever seen anyone dominate his sport for 10 years like he did. And not only in not only in winning, but dominated the marketing, changed the sport, opened it up. I mean, we would have no golf channel if it wasn't for Tiger Woods. Yeah, no, you know, it's you're right, you're right. And the only other athlete, again, the only one. Well, Babe Ruth did. Babe Ruth changed baseball dramatically with his home runs. But the only other one in modern times that I think had the same impact is Wayne Gretzky. You would not have Sunbelt teams in the NHL without Wayne Gretzky. I, I mean, how could we ever forget to you? And I will also, because I think of the Tiger Woods, and I talk about changing the sport, making more money for people, and, of course, changing sports television and go further back is Muhammad Ali. Of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, by the way, I just got an email from someone. I think this is true. Webster lives on Six Nations. So this person says, so there you go. He lives in the area. Someone else just wrote me and said Caledonia. So if you're driving around and you happen to see a little guy hitchhiking one day because his car broke down, you go, my goodness, that looked like Webster. But no, it couldn't be Webster. Yeah, it's probably Webster. Pick him up. How does Emmanuel Lewis end up in Caledonia? You know what I'm going to do, Bubba? We are going to track him down. He's probably still down where you were in the casino. But when he gets home... I am going to make it my mission to have him in studio one day. He and I, he's going to be in here on a Friday for the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio, me and Webster. That would be awesome. You make sure and show him that picture. Oh, oh, I will. I'll get an autograph for sure. (laughs) Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can hear him tonight at 11 o'clock doing sports and weather, sir. Thanks as always. Welcome home. Always a pleasure. Thanks, bud. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.